Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. discipline of economics uh, is sort of an odd thing because it's highly mathematical. Uh, many people, you might think, well, I'm going to study economics. I'm going to learn about how people buy and sell and exchange and create value and uh, buy and sell and exchange goods and services and information, all these kinds of things. It's about people creating and selling and working together. Uh, and then you drop into a macroeconomics course and you get some graphs and some letters that stand for things. And you basically get entirely turned off to the discipline. I'm convinced that macroeconomics in many schools is designed to alienate people from the discipline of economics. I mean, that's sort of what it did for me. It was the first course I had. I didn't learn about basic economic reasoning. I was just sort of introduced to these mathematical formalisms that uh, I was supposed to manipulate. It didn't teach me what I thought actually economics primarily should be teaching people. And so um, I struggled as a college student, probably like many of you as a freshman in college. I was in college in the 1980s. So my college experience preceded the collapse of the Soviet Union. I entered college as a freshman, completely clueless. I was Protestant evangelical at the time, had an introductory political science course. And one of the required readings, one of the textbooks, in fact, was the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, written in 1848. How many of you read the Communist Manifesto? I mean, if you've done poli-sci, uh, it, I mean, it's a quick read. You can read it in an hour. It's a pamphlet, essentially, that was designed really to kind of, you know, fire up the peasants with pitchforks, essentially. It's, I mean, it's what it was designed to do. It's, so it's a pamphlet rather than academic treatise. But my professor, who is a low talker, uh, and I had a hard time hearing him the whole semester, but I was sure at the beginning of the class, remember, I'm a freshman, had said, if you read the textbooks five times, you will get an A in the class. Well, that's simple. I mean, the, the book is short. How hard can this be? So I had the Communist Manifesto and a book called Democracy for the Few by an American socialist named Michael Parente. But I didn't get that at the time. And so imagine a college freshman, just a kind of mushy brain, mostly blank slate on economic issues, reading Marx and reading an American socialist five times my first semester of my freshman year. So I went back at Christmas uh, arguing that Christians ought to be socialists, and it all sort of made sense. Later, I studied analytic philosophy and realized my reasoning wasn't super tight, but it was basically this. Uh, God talks a lot about poor people. Jesus tells us we're supposed to be concerned about the poor. The Bible talks a lot about the poor. It's premise one. Premise two, the socialists talk a lot about the poor. Conclusion, Christians should be socialists. That's the argument, unfortunately, right? Not very impressive when it's sort of laid out formally. But that was the impression I had in my head. Um, and so I spent several years actually trying to work Christian theology and socialism in together. Nevertheless, I continued to study the discipline of economics. I had a, a couple of courses. Uh, but rather than doing that, I started reading people like Thomas Sowell, who was an American, uh, still alive, and a, a prominent American economist, and reading different magazines. So that by the time I was a senior in college, I had entirely changed my mind on economics. I was convinced, this was 1989, that of the live alternatives that are actually available to us this side of the kingdom of God, an economic system that's described by private property rights and limited government and economic freedom. That's just the best thing going. It's not utopia. It's not the kingdom of God on earth. 
But if you want to do the things that an economy can do, lift people out of poverty, uh, lift entire populations out of absolute poverty, allow people to channel their, uh, their gifts and even sometimes their vices into outcomes that are beneficial to others. That's the best system. But I had one other problem. In my senior year, I had a class, and I won't give you the details of it, um, but the students got to vote as a great capstone course. We started with Aristotle and Plato. And then for one week, the students got to pick the book that we were going to read. And so it turns out that many of my uh, political science majors liked Ayn Rand, whom I had never read. And so we voted and ended up with a little book by Rand called For the New Intellectual. It's a little collection of essays. And I'll talk about Rand more in a minute, but this was key because I read this, and at the time I thought, wow, I cannot believe that what she's saying, is this legal? I mean, I was in a very sort of formerly Christian, very liberal college, and it was transfixing, the stuff she was arguing. And so I had a, a, a friend that lived across the hall, and he had a copy of a book called Atlas Shrugged, which is a very thick book by Rand written in 1957, made into a very bad trilogy recently that I would not, would not recommend. And so I ended up reading Atlas Shrugged when I was supposed to be studying for my German final my senior year. I don't recommend this. It's actually a very bad idea. But it was so different from everything I had read that I, I couldn't put it down. It's not great literature. It's essentially, I mean, there's a section called This is John Galt Speaking, that it's a basically a 40-page speech by, uh, by one of the characters. But Rand set up a, a, a kind of a moral dilemma for me and it was essentially this, is that I thought on empirical grounds, economic freedom, what free markets, whatever you want to call it, seemed to make the most sense. Of the things human beings have tried, this just simply works better, certainly, than the, the main alternative. But Rand's take on it was morally unsavory. In fact, she's a hardcore atheist. She was an anti-Christian uh, that was a critic of altruism and a defender of selfishness and greed. And so I thought, well, this is bad. I, this, I mean, if, this, if she's right about this, then I've got some problem here in my understanding of the world. Nevertheless, I graduated from college, went off to the theological seminary. Uh, the Berlin Wall collapsed. The Soviet Union ceased to exist without a shot fired. And this grand experiment of the 20th century between two fundamentally different ways of ordering society, uh, sort of broadly free economies, and broadly command economies in which the state more or less dictates the terms. Uh, that experiment was exercised over a large section of the human race, half the human race under command economies, what we now call communism, though that's, that's not quite right. Uh, and insofar as that was a test, and insofar as history could test ideas, it seemed to me that someone won and someone lost. One set of ideas won one set of ideas lost. And that was the consensus in the early 1990s. And so though I was intellectually interested in these questions about economics, I actually thought the debate had been settled. That's not interesting. I'm gonna do something that's actually still in dispute. And so I focused on the intersection of, of theology and science for many years. And it put me back on college campuses in the late 1990s. And what I discovered is that a lot of the bad economic ideas that I had in my mind in the 1980s were alive and well in the minds of college students in the 1990s. It's as if history hadn't happened. Did not make sense to me. Uh, and so I honestly got into this out of frustration more than anything else, because I thought there are basic lessons that we need to learn about history and about economics that everyone that's informed needs to understand. And if we're gonna avoid supporting policies that actually kill people or harm people, we all need to know something about economics. 
But apparently, often what happens in economic courses doesn't take or it doesn't quite penetrate people's intuitions. And so that's what I sort of set out to do and eventually wrote this book, Money, Greed, and God. And now uh, I find myself actually at a school of business and economics talking about these things. So that's what I want to talk to you about here this afternoon for a little bit. And so this I'm going to talk about is based on a book called Money, Greed, and God, which is the result of my frustration from dozens of interactions with college students in which I was taking notes of the objections that kids had to whatever you want to call it, capitalism, free enterprise, free markets, whatever. Part of the problem is actually words. The word capitalism, I'm convinced now, is probably, uh, it's, it's an impediment. Even if you get to stipulate a definition, it's more of an impediment than anything. And it's because, I mean, just close your eyes here for a second, okay? And try to, this is, I'm doing a little uh, phenomenological analysis here, all right? Okay, and so when you hear the word capitalism, if there's, think, what is the image that comes to mind when you hear that? Okay, I'll tell you what comes to mind when I, when I hear it. It's Uncle Pennybags. It's the character from Monopoly. That, you know, he's the tuxedo-clad guy with the monocle. Uh, it's actually a caricature of J.P. Morgan, by the way. And his name is Uncle Pennybags. I looked it up. That's what it says on Wikipedia. That's his name. That's the picture people have. And the reason is because the word capitalism was actually coined by socialists. If you read Adam Smith and his uh, Wealth of Nations in 1776, he knew nothing of this word. Nothing of this word. Uh, Karl Marx is the one that popularized it to describe the system as he understood it in the late 19th century and the middle of the 19th century in Europe. And so in many ways, it's an impediment. It's like the word Christian initially. It was coined by people who were critics. The word Big Bang is the same thing. It was Big Bang actually was coined by Fred Hoyle, a critic of Big Bang cosmology. That's how capitalism is. And so we attach negative connotations to it. And it makes it very hard for us to think clearly about these things. So what I really want to do more than anything else, in fact, no, the only thing I want to do this afternoon is to, if I can, help you at least think clearly about the sort of boundary conditions and what's going on when we think about economics and help you recognize a few of the myths or intellectual speed bumps, roadblocks, that prevent us from thinking clearly about economics, about markets, about wealth and poverty. So I uh, talked to the ph a philosophy group today, which was terrific, a philosophy club. In fact, uh, I highly recommend it. It was a really a great conversation. And I asked students there a question. Why is it that on certain academic subjects, people know they need to know something in order to have a strong opinion? So you don't see bumper sticker wars when it comes to chemistry. I don't remember ever seeing a debate about the periodic table on a bumper sticker. There are bumper stickers about Darwin, right? That's sort of science, but it's because people, there's a kind of worldview issue there. There are political disputes that find their way onto bumper stickers, and there are economic disputes that find their way onto bumper stickers. But there's no dispute about chemistry. There's no heated culture war argument about the order of the elements on the periodic table. And in fact, there's these two disciplines that I can think of that are disciplines in academic institutions, theology and economics in which most of us feel perfectly entitled to have very strong opinions, even if we know absolutely nothing about the subject. <laughs> now, why is that? Why do you think that is? I mean, no one thinks, well, I don't really know anything about chemistry, but I feel really strongly about the way in which chromium and sodium interact or something. It just makes no sense. You know tacitly there's something I would need to learn before I really am going to have an, a, a, a responsible opinion on the subject. 
And I think what it is, is that, and I'm talking about just culture in general, is that we treat these subjects as if there's no knowledge to be had. Theology, it's about sort of our feelings, essentially. It's a kind of an emotive thing, and I feel like the kind of God that I could believe in is, you know, whatever. It's the thing that you construct. And economics, too, not exactly the same way, but we tend to treat economics as if it's just about our moral intuitions. And so we assume that we can answer the question of whether, say, raising the minimum wage will help people, not based on looking at the data or understanding anything about prices, but based on how that makes us feel about ourselves. And so we treat these things not as subjects of knowledge, not as bodies of knowledge, as parts of reality that can be studied and understood, but simply as things that are just kind of reflections of our, our kind of moral, emotional makeup, right? And we treat morality this way in many, many cases, too. It's, just, it's, it's sort of a glandular thing. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with knowledge. If you can get over that basic idea, you more or less, I think, solve most of the problems on this. So this is what I want to convince you of. I want to convince you that just as there is a realm of God's created reality that you could call the chemical realm, it's part of the physical reality, it's connected to physics, it's connected to biology, it's connected to psychology. Nevertheless, it has its own internal rules and structure that can be understood, that can be figured out, can be formalized, can be used to make predictions and to understand a little slice of God's created order. God is rational and he creates a world in which there are these sort of overlapping and concentric spheres of logic and intelligibility that we can discover. And in the same way, there is an economic realm or a domain. It's not chemistry. We're not studying molecules. It's not physics. What is it? Well, what is it? It's essentially a, a social reality that supervenes on particular activities of human beings in particular kinds of communities. And by studying this domain that's atop human activity, we can discern certain rules and principles. It's a reality outside us that we can understand something about. It's not physics, it's not exactly like that, but it, there are truths that can be known and that exist outside our preferences. If you get that, if you get that economics, is, it's just not an academic discipline, it's just not uh, studying calculus for the social sciences and learning about supply and demand, but it is a domain of reality that's intelligible, then all of a sudden you realize, you know what, there's probably something I need to know uh, before I can decide what economic policy I actually support. Now this seems to me this is the simplest distinction, but I never cease to be amazed at how often disputes about economics come down to this. They come down to simply not believing that, you know, there's actually something well understood here that economists understand. I debated a man, and I'm not going to give his name, he's a really good guy, he's a fellow Catholic, um, a few years ago, and it was a private event. And I wanted to make essentially this point, that there's just things economists know that we really should take account of in our thinking. And I thought the implications of his argument were that there actually were no economic truths. But I didn't expect him to say that. So I was trying to do this sort of philosopher's trick of the, the reduction to the absurd and hope the audience would catch it. Well, the, guy was, the, the, the friend I was debating had too much to drink that night. And this is why I never drink more than one beer before I speak. <laughs> Way too much to drink. And so I was trying to do the reductio. And he interrupted and said, well, I would want to say there are no economic truths. He just said it. Unfortunately, there were some Dominicans in the audience. And so they took care of it from there. I mean, they really got upset about this. But this is basically what it's about. If you realize this, 
oh, there's something I should know about how prices function in a context of scarcity. There's something I should know about how supply and demand relate and interact out there in the world, then you're actually almost all the way there. There's still stuff you need to know, but you know that you need to know it. You know that you can't just depend upon your sort of direct moral intuitions by themselves to guide you to decide, say, should, should Florida have price gouging laws or not, right? That, that seems like, okay, viscerally, everybody has the same response to it, but actually working out the details is a little harder. So really, this is all I want to say, and I'm just going to give you some examples of four myths, and it's this. It's the reason economics is hard is because it's a human science, it's not physics, it's not chemistry, almost always when we talk about economic questions, we are mixing the empirical, the theoretical, and the moral in our minds. And those questions are always there. Usually when we're trying to test the particular interactions, say, of two elements in the periodic table, uh, the, the moral question isn't primary. But the reason those of you are here tonight or this afternoon, they didn't have to be here, those 10 or 15 of you that didn't just came actually voluntarily, is because you're actually interested in the human question. Things like, what makes societies wealthy? How do some societies manage to alleviate absolute poverty and other ones just stay mired in poverty forever? Those are moral questions, and you know they have something to do with economics. That's why we come to it. But to answer those questions, we have to make three fundamental distinctions. It's really three questions we have to distinguish. It's the what question, the why question, and the what ought question. So what question is the empirical question? So I'll just give you an example. Let's take rent control. So rent control is a policy that was widely uh, uh, used in the 1960s and 1970s in large cities. And some countries still have vestigial elements of this policy. The idea is that you have a large city with a large population, a lot of demand, limited supply of housing, and so the prices go up. This is the one thing everybody remembers from economics. The price is going to go up on rental housing. City councils around the world thought, well, we'll fix that. We'll make it illegal for landlords to charge above a certain amount. That's price control. So now, so why would they do that? They do it, right, presumably to keep housing affordable for lower income people. So the what question is simply, what would happen if a city did that? What happens if, say, that Manhattan, the borough in New York, stipulates that it's illegal for a landlord to charge above $400 a month in rent for one bedroom apartments? What happens? That's an empirical question. No answering it. I'm going to get to that. <laughs> Somebody's wanting that, right? So you get this. So what would happen in Seattle if we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour? To Seattle's credit, by the way, they're doing a study and have a website in which they're tracking that experiment, which they're doing. What would happen? It's an empirical question. Now, ideally, you'd try this a bunch of times in different places and get the data. Right? But I want you to see that that's not a moral question. It's what happens, let's go look at actually what happens to unemployment, people's job patterns, uh, the, the black market and the gray market and all these kinds of things. What's the why question? The why question is the theoretical question. So you can have lots of data about rent control and what happens afterwards and I have no idea why this happens. It would just be a mere correlation. We do this thing, these particular things happen, we don't know why it happens. To really understand it, to have knowledge about that, you'd need a theory about why that's going on, right? That would explain those things. And then maybe 
not only take that data, but be able to predict based on that. So this is almost always when we're doing a science. Knowledge is had between, or it's in the interaction of what we're observing and the theory that we develop to explain it. And it's the kind of creative interaction of the observations and the theory that give us knowledge. Same thing in economics. Those then are the empirical and the theoretical questions. The third question is the what ought question. That is, what ought we to do? What is the right thing to do? And normally, the relevant moral consideration here is not, well, what ought we to do to torture people or to punish people that we don't like, right? It's what ought we to do to help people generally in this situation, especially the people that are the most vulnerable. That's the moral question. And notice that you don't know, there's no way to know the answer to that question for almost any economic policy unless you already know the answer to the what and the why question. But what we do is we import our assumptions about the what and the why and then get to the what ought ahead of time. We make a decision based upon our gut moral intuitions rather than our knowledge of the reality. If you can learn to distinguish those things, you'll solve the problem. All right? Now here's how what I would argue is just purely my take on this. How I think we should, um, as our goal intellectually is informed Christians and as Catholics, what should we be after here? What we should not be after is integrating some particular economic thinker with Catholic social teaching. I, for instance, I've got a friend uh, who's an evangelical, and um, his life goal is to synthesize Christian theology and Ayn Rand's economic theory. Okay, this is, uh, go ahead and try. That doesn't sound like it's going to work very well. Something's going to have to give because you have these kind of incompatible views of the world. And there are a lot of economic theorists that might be utilitarians or materialists or just simply don't have a really clear anthropology. And so you actually don't want to import an entire theorist's ideas. What you want to import is actually the empirical results, the things that economists have actually learned, and the best theoretical insights that they've developed over the years. You want to import those. Right? And then you want to embed those in a broader understanding of reality, a proper anthropology, the perennial moral principles of Catholic social teaching, metaphysical truths about the human person, and so forth. Does that make sense? So our job is not, I want to integrate Hayek's economic philosophy with John Paul II's theology of the body. That's, you could try that, but I think the more fruitful thing is just say, let's find out what they, economists know, and we don't actually really need their anthropological assumptions, all right? If we do that, then I would say we end up with a synthesis that's actually much more satisfying and explanatory than anything else we had before. This is hard. There are a few people that have tried this. The late Michael Novak, who died uh, this just last February, spent decades doing this and working on this. And I highly recommend it. I'm sure he spoke at Franciscan many times. But very few people have actually done this. Very few theologians have taken enough of an interest in economics to actually try to develop a synthesis. And so I actually think this is still a work in progress. It's something for the future. If you're trying to decide what to do, you might consider this. So let's talk about these four myths. And this, I hope, will give you a sense of how we need to distinguish and relate the what, the why, and the what on. All right? The piety myth is the mother of all the economic myths. And I call this the piety myth because it talk, the piety is about the state of our hearts. The piety myth is focusing on our intentions, on what we mean to do, rather than focusing on the effects of our actions. This is so, so central that a guy named Henry Hazlitt in the 1950s wrote a great little book called Economics in One Lesson. And if you open up the book right at the beginning, 
He's not interested in what we call the science of economics. He talks about the art of economics. An art is sort of a skill that you get down in your bones so that it becomes an automatic part of who you are intellectually. Here's what Hazlitt said. He said, the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. In other words, the art of economics consists in asking this question, and then what will happen? So somebody says, let's raise the minimum wage at the federal level to $100 an hour, and then we'll all be rich and I'll be able to pay off my student loans. If you've got the art of economics, what are you going to say? You're going to say, that's a great idea. It sounds really nice. Oh, you're so sweet. No, you're going to say, oh, that's interesting. And then what will happen? And then you trace the consequences, not merely for yourself, who you assume your labor is worth $100 an hour, but for everyone else. And if you learn to do that, you will have mastered the art of economics, and you will avoid the, the piety myth, because you'll be focused on what actually happens to people rather than simply what you meant to do. Now, why is this hard to get? This is not complicated, learning to ask about the consequences of actions. This is not hard stuff. Why is this so difficult? I think it's difficult because of the nature of the moral act. You all know the story in several of the Gospels of the widow's mites. Jesus and the, the apostles are in Jerusalem, and they're watching people giving their gifts to the temple treasury. And of course, rich people are uh, ostentatiously giving of their wealth visibly so that people could see how much they're giving. And then Jesus notices and calls out a humble widow, an impoverished widow, who gives two mites, two copper pennies. And he calls her out and says that she's done the greater of the acts, the greater of the giving. Now, is his point economic here? Was Jesus saying, turns out there was just two cents left on the capital campaign for the, the temple, and then we just completed it. So she won the prize, ring the bell. Now, you know that's not what's happening. And that's not his point. His point is that everyone else gave out of their wealth. It didn't really cost them much. They got the reward being seen doing it. She gave out of her poverty and had to act in a humiliating way to do it. And so it morally, her act was more significant. Because God cares both why we do something and what we do. Both what's inside and what's outside matter in the moral act. Imagine that you know me fairly well, all right? And you know uh, that I tend not to do random sweet things to people, but you hear that I've given my wife three dozen roses on a random day that's no one's, not her birthday, and it's not, uh, it's not her anniversary, nothing. I've just given her three dozen roses, all right? Now, by itself, that sounds like a random act of kindness. That I've just, just done, it's a gratuitous act. But there's another guy that knows me a little better, and he knows I have a penchant, an addiction to golf, and I like three-day golf outings. And I've already gone on three this year already, and my wife hates it. And I've got another possibility to go on a three-day outing to Pebble Beach. And I need to bring it up. And a few hours before I need to bring it up, she gets three dozen roses. All right, now, are you going to view it differently than my friend who doesn't know about this? Of course you are. Right, same act. Did the same thing. In one case, it's just a nice thing to do for my wife. In another case, it's an act of manipulation. That's the moral life. Why we do it and what we do. The economic realm doesn't care why you do stuff. 
The economic realm doesn't care why members of Congress vote on particular bills and for particular policies. Members of Congress could have 535 different reasons for a bill. President could sign it. That bill and the policy is going to have the same effect regardless of what they meant to do. In fact, I would argue when you're dealing with economic policy, be hard-nosed about focusing on what's actually going to happen to real people. Don't be morally self-indulgent by saying, well, at least I meant well. If you learn to do that, you'll solve and get over the piety myth. So let me give you that example we've already talked about of rent control. All right, this is a simple one because this is well known to economists. So rent control, you think, okay, let's, let's implement rent control. And let's say a city says, we're going to make it illegal for landowners or landlords to charge more than $400 a month for rent for one-bedroom apartments. That'll keep the prices down low where poor people can afford it. Right, that, that might make sense. Now, why would you do that? To help the poor in the area, right? Now, you can figure out what's actually going to happen here if you just think about it for a minute from the perspective of the landlord. Let's assume you own an apartment complex with nothing but one-bedroom apartments, and it costs you $800 a month just to maintain every unit. It's now illegal for you to rent it out for more than $400. So you're going to rent out that unit. Every month, you're going to lose $400 doesn't make any sense, unless you're just trying to find a way to go broke, right? So what are you going to do? You're going to do one of three or four things. You're going to convert the rental property to commercial property, so you'll sell it so that it becomes a condominium. It's no longer rental property. This happened to my wife and me uh, in Seattle, in a great apartment that we could never have afforded to buy, and it turned into condos, and we had to move to the suburbs. Right? So that's one thing. Second thing is you'll make it commercial property so that it's stores or uh, maybe a parking garage or, or storage facilities or grocery stores. So it's not, no longer residential property. Or you will figure out how to cut costs so that those, that housing doesn't cost you much to maintain. And then it eventually degrades right? and it becomes a slum and it's condemned 10, 15, 20 years. And then there's a fourth thing that will happen is that any developers that might have thought about building new apartment complexes will not do that because it makes no economic sense. So the point is the, the, the desire in that case was to keep affordable housing for lower income people. The effect? Shortage in just the housing that was targeted for the law. It does exactly the opposite. Now why? We know that happens wherever it's tried. Why does it happen? The first lesson you ever learn in microeconomics, and it's about supply and demand. And so what prices do in a context of scarcity and competition is give you information about the underlying supply and demand of the thing. So one person that's trying to sell something might just arbitrarily come up with a number, but he has competitors that are going to be competing with him. Right? And so what's going to happen is that the prices are going to more or less approximate this underlying economic reality. And a city council can't determine what that reality is by simply specifying a price. This is the most basic lesson of economics. It's as if the first thing you learned is that hydrogen is lighter than helium. And then almost everything you have to think about relied on that, and you still managed to forget it. That's what we do in economics. We forget the first lesson. So we know why, and we know why. If you know that, then whatever you do, you're not going to try that unless you're actually wanting to create a shortage for housing. Right? So that's why you want to learn something about these things. And if you do that, notice, you will have avoided the piety myth. You will have learned to think through the consequences of policies for every group and not just one group. Second myth is what I call the greed myth. Now, greed myth is not the idea that people are greedy. 
<laughs> That's not a myth, right? Uh, we're a fallen race, get two or three gathered together anywhere, and greed will be in the midst of them. I mean, it's just kind of how things go. That's not a myth. The greed myth is the idea that the essence of the market economy is greed, that it needs greed to work, that it feeds greed, and that its sort of essence is greed. Why do I call that a myth? Well, I think it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the market economy. But first, remember, I'm not saying the myth is that people are greedy. Let's just, let's grant that. The problem with this myth, and the reason I think it's so insidious, is that many of the champions of capitalism actually assume this. In fact, I was at a conference some years ago, Christian college professors and think tank libertarian types, and all the college professors were very skeptical of free markets, and the opening talk was by a prominent economist, and the title of the lecture was Greed is Good. <laughs> and all these Christian college professors were like turtles returning to their shells, right? We knew this was what we were gonna get. I argued with the guy during the question and answer. I never got invited to that conference again. This is a disaster, but he was essentially articulating what Ayn Rand had argued. Rand actually wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. It's an edited collection. This is what she actually said in the book. She said, capitalism and altruism are incompatible. They are philosophical opposites. They cannot coexist in the same man or in the same society. Now Rand, it turns out, had weird definitions of words. Still, this idea that capitalism and altruism are incompatible, that's a problem for Christians, if that were true. First of all, greed and selfishness are one of the seven deadly sins. They're, they're, that's a vice. And altruism is a good thing, acting for the benefit of other people. So if Rand is right, that's a really serious problem. She's one of the most widely read defenders of capitalism in the 20th century. I was in Hong Kong a few years ago, walked by a, a bookstore. I thought, what do people read in Hong Kong? So I went in, went right up to that the table next to the checkout stand, right there. Newest book by Richard Dawkins, of course, and next to her was Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand in Hong Kong. So that's how widely read she is. Nevertheless, I think she fundamentally misunderstood the market system. There's a friend and colleague named George Gilder who actually argued uh, about 1980 that in fact, if you look at what the entrepreneur actually does, he or she is altruistic, not in the sense that he's thinking sweet nothings and visualizing world peace, but what does an entrepreneur do? An entrepreneur is a person that takes risk with his or her own money, maybe gets extra capital in pursuit of a vision that may or not pay off. And the vision always has something to do with meeting a desire and need of people, maybe even before they realize they need it. That's entirely different than the miser that hoards wealth. Now, one of the ends of the entrepreneur might be to make more money, but this is not the kind of selfish money-grubbing miser that you might be led to expect from Rand. But a lot of people think, actually, Rand's argument, isn't she just kind of updating what the founder of modern economics argued? is Adam Smith. People often read Smith now, and they don't actually read Smith. If you read his Wealth of Nations, which very few people actually read, there are lots of pages about pen factories and the British tariffs and actually a lot of super boring stuff. And so nobody actually reads it. What they do is they've heard a couple of quotes from Smith, and then they assume that Smith was arguing more or less what Ayn Rand argued. Adam Smith for those of you who don't know, he's a Scottish moral philosopher, part of the Scottish Enlightenment, probably a deist. His first book was called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and then in 1776, he wrote a book 
called the wealth of nations. So this is the only slightly complicated part of my talk. So if you make it for the next five minutes, it's super easy downhill stuff, all right? So I just, I'm, we need to slice the bologna a little thinner than we're normally used to. Because what I want you to see is that actually, Adam Smith had a very interesting and sophisticated argument that is not Ayn Rand's greed is good gag. It's something else. So what I'm gonna do is I wanna just give you the two quotes you've all heard in some version. Then I want you to analyze them carefully. So here's the first one. And Smith says these kinds of things throughout the wealth of nations. He says, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. Okay, so just let that hang there. Is Smith saying greed is good, that the butcher ought to be greedy? Or is he saying something else? I just hold it there. Now there's one other idea that comes from Smith, and everyone associates this one idea with Smith. It's his description of the market as a, anybody know? It's an invisible hand, right? People assume this is a perennial theme. He said it, so far as I can tell, two places ever. So I'll give you one example of that, all right? So I'm expecting you to kind of hold these two quotes in your head for a second. Right, so here's one of the quotes. He's talking about what he calls men of commerce. This is what he says. He says, in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity, business people are led by an invisible hand and thus without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society. Now what is Smith saying? He's actually saying several things and if you study him carefully, you realize there's a heck of a lot going on here. There's a couple of things you need to understand about Smith. He was a moral traditionalist. He was influenced by the Stoics. He's widely considered a neo-Stoic. He treated vices the same way Christian theology and the perennial tradition had always treated vices. So the seven deadly sins were sins, they were bad. Vice was not a virtue, selfishness was not a virtue, it was a bad thing. So he can't possibly be saying what Rand was saying. And I could spend a lot of time on that, but I'll just ask you to trust me on that particular point. The other crucial point is that there's a distinction between mere self-interest and selfishness. Distinction between selfishness and mere self-interest. Every time you take a breath, every time you look both ways before you cross the street, eat three square meals a day, brush your teeth, take your vitamins, study before an exam, you're acting in your self-interest. Is that bad? You say, well, it's a necessary evil, I have to breathe, I'm sorry, you know. And no, that makes no sense. If you have children, you realize you actually spend a bunch of years just teaching your children what their self-interest is, that you really should brush your teeth. This, is, this will help you, just learn to do this. We are bodily creatures. We need to eat, we need to breathe, we take up space, we need shelter. It's how God made us. Those, are not, those aren't necessary evils, they're part of what it means to be embodied creatures. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you need to breathe and you need to eat and you need to drink. That's how God made us. That by itself is not part of the fall. So self-interest, what is that exactly? Well, if you read Smith carefully, self-interest is essentially this domain of your existence over which you have some control and knowledge and some direct interest. So in other words, the butcher, his self-interest includes the fact that his daughter needs braces and he doesn't have the money yet. And so Smith's point is that the butcher doesn't have to be thinking how much he loves his customers. He can just be thinking about the fact that his daughter needs braces, which is actually much more interesting to him and much more important. But in a market system with the rule of law, he's not gonna steal from you, he can't do that. 
He might try to sell you rotten meat, but he'll go broke. So what's he gonna do? He's gonna try to provide meat at a quality that you like and at a price you can afford and to do it better than his competitors. In other words, simply by focusing on those things that he's most interested in, the market process with a rule of law will channel his activities toward things that benefit others. Now, whatever you think of that, that's a totally different and much subtler argument than anything Ayn Rand made. Right? That a market, not, not anarchy, this is not the Lord of the Flies, right? This is a system with rule of law, what Smith called the natural system of liberty, that you'd get this. That's the first point. And then the final point is the difference between, I told you, selfishness and self-interest. This is his second point. Notice in the second quote, he doesn't say business people ought to be selfish and rapacious. He says in spite of their natural selfishness and rapaciousness. In other words, if you have a system of laws set up right, even a vicious baker, even a greedy baker or a greedy butcher, the best way for him to fulfill his greed and to make money and to get money is what? Is to make bread or to make meat? and to sell it at a price people are willing to pay and to do it better than its competitors. Smith's point is that a market system with the rule of law has the capacity to channel not only our ingenuity and our legitimate self-interest, but even our vices, so that more often than not, they lead to socially beneficial outcomes, or at least more beneficial outcomes than any other system. Take the socialist system, for instance. In the socialist system, you have no incentive to serve a customer. Your incentive is to entirely to curry favor with the regulators and the government apparatchiks. That's your incentive. That's Smith's point. Now, I want you to see that that is an argument, is, as an argument, is a thing of beauty and is something much more subtle than anything Ayn Rand said. Now, there's arguments against it. I'm not saying that. I just want you to see that. That's important because what kind of economic system do we want to have this side of glory? We want an economic system that is fit for fallen human beings. Now, markets need a minimal level of virtue to work. If most, almost everyone is stealing from everybody else, no one respects the rights of others, you can't get a market. So you need a certain minimal level of virtue. But beyond that, you want a system that will channel and incentivize people to do things that benefit others, even if maybe in some cases you're doing it for greedy reasons. Make sense? That's as complicated as it gets, I promise. Right? So just hold that in your mind if you forget everything else, those distinctions. Third myth is called the zero-sum game myth. And this myth is about the nature of trade. And I spent a lot of time on this. And this is actually a really popular myth right now. In fact, it's popular by both major political parties in the United States, which is an exciting time because I'm not partisan now. Um, I'm actually arguing against leaders in both political parties. What's the zero-sum game myth? Well, this is the idea that in trade, there is always a winner and a loser. Now, what is a zero-sum game? A zero-sum game is a win-lose game. It's called zero-sum because it's like adding one and minus one. One plus minus one equals zero, so it sums to zero. These are the kinds of competitive games that we normally play. Chess, checkers, soccer, hockey, football, things like that. You can tie in some of those games, but notice if there's a tie, nobody wins. But the logic of the rules is such is that if there's a winner, there has to be a loser. That's a zero-sum or win-lose game. All right, hold that in your mind. So you can already probably guess there are going to be two other logically possible games. Second one would be a lose-lose game. 
That is a game in which everyone that plays ends up worse off than they were at the beginning. So these aren't games we normally play more than once. It's actually hard to come up with examples. I never do. Nuclear war in a confined space is the best one I've been able to come up with. <laughs> Nobody gets off better. So that just everybody ends up worse off, right? So there's win-lose or zero-sum games. There's lose-lose. Third one is a win-win game. Now, what's a win-win game? A win-win game is a game in which everyone plays over the long run, ends up better off than they would have been if they had not played the game. So in other words, the question you ask to determine if you're in a win-win game is not, am I better off than that other guy? That's not the question. The question is, am I better off for having played the game than I would have been if I had not played it? So you're comparing yourself in the game with your counterfactual self. And a game is win-win if people end up better off as a result of it, even if some people end up way better off than others. Make sense? Because at this point, we're just, just kind of basic logic. Right, so the question is, is the nature of trade always zero-sum? Is there always, if something somebody benefits from a trade in one country or one area, somebody ha else had to sort of lose proportionally in order for that to work? What's weird is I knew the answer to this question in the sixth grade. I grew up in a town in Texas that was mostly hot, but had the occasional ice storm, so we didn't have snow days. But you knew the ice storm was coming, and so teachers would prepare to keep you inside all day, not go out to recess. And so in this particular case, I'm in the sixth grade, my teacher had heard about the snow and the ice. She'd gone to the dollar store and bought a bunch of toys that she passed out during recess. And so there was a silly putty egg and a paddle ball and a pack of Barbie trading cards. Who wants that, right? I mean, just this kind of stuff. Passed out to all the kids, different toys. You say, okay, now look around, look at the toy you have and look at the toys of the other kids in the room and rank between one and 10 how much you like your toy. One if you don't like it at all, and it's a 10 if you really like it. It's totally up to you. So we all did this. Now assume there are five rows of five kids. I don't remember exactly, but that simplifies this. So we all had different toys we're sort of ranking compared to what other people have, and we do this. And then she says, okay, tell me what your score is. And she had us call out the number that we gave our toy. She added up the total, and she wrote it on the board. So anyway, it's the sum total of our subjective evaluation of our toy situation. That's what it is, all right? Said, okay, on the first round of the game, you can freely trade with anyone else in your row. So that meant we could trade initial trades with four other people. So there was some activity, some toys changed hands, but there wasn't a whole lot, but people sort of changed for a couple of minutes, settled down, and you said, okay, now write down how much you like the toy that you have in your hand. So again, we did it. She had us add up the total. She called, we called it out, she added it up. She wrote the total on the board. And you know what happened, right? The number went up. Now what's happening here? This is weird, same toys, number goes up. Said, okay, now in the second round of the game, you can freely trade with anyone else in the classroom. This is why I remember this game these years later. Mass pandemonium. Everybody has 24 potential trading partners on the first trade. So the chances, the kind of permutations here are very large. So lots of chaos, kids that had never said anything suddenly snapped to and ran the calculations. Lots of stuff changing hands. It eventually settled down and you said, okay, now no longer, no trades happening. Write down how much you like the toy you have in your hand. We all did it again, called out the number. She added up the total and she wrote it on the board. What happened? the number went way up. What's happening here? What's happening here is a game with pre-specified rules. She said you can freely trade with anyone else in the classroom. That did not mean I could threaten the little girl behind me right, with harm the next time we went outside if she didn't give me the paddle ball and take the Barbie trading cards. That's not a free trade. 
A trade only happened if both sides do it. That's the rule. So there's certain things set up, things you can't do, and then it channels your activity toward certain kinds of exchanges. And any exchange that takes place is only going to take place unless both people perceive themselves as better off as a result of having done it. Now, this is the stuff of everyday life. We do this all the time. I have never walked into a grocery store where the grocer was standing there, okay, let's play rock, paper, scissors. And if you lose, you give me all your money. That's not how it works. You go in, you buy groceries. If you did, that suggests you preferred the groceries to the money. And if he took the money, that suggests you preferred the money to the groceries. That's mutually beneficial exchange. Not that complicated. Actually hard to get going, though. You need a very precise system of laws and customs. Lord Acton put it this way. He said, liberty is the delicate fruit of a mature civilization, not anarchy. Rule of law, free exchange, win-win. And the more opportunities for these exchanges, the greater the value. Now, here's where I think a lot of us as Catholics get sort of confused. And this is why I don't use the word capitalism. Because I've heard many, many people, in fact, if I had a dollar for every time someone's told me this, I, I would be a rich man. They say, what we want is some third way between capitalism and socialism. And nobody ever quite knows what they mean by that, but they picture a Danish village with a Volvo in the garage, so far as I can tell, and dried salmon, and everybody's living happily. That's just kind of the picture. Um, but it, it really, that's not the relevant spectrum. If you want to talk about the relevant social spectrum, you know, let's talk about it just with respect to the state, the coercive power of the state. Here's the spectrum. Anarchy, where there's no functioning rule of law at all. In that case, that doesn't last long, and what it ends up with is the powerful enslaving and lording it over the weak. That's one extreme. The other extreme is statism, in which the coercive power of the state is in your business. It is in your family. It is in your mind. It is in your job. It is in everything you do. That's the spectrum. The sweet spot is a rule of law with a limited government that enforces the rule of law and that is itself subject to the rule of law, and it sets up the conditions for beneficial interactions in the economic sphere. That's the sweet spot we should look for, and it's the one in which people overwhelmingly flourish if we actually look at the evidence of the 20 and early 21st century. Final related myth. So I lied a little bit about no more kind of nuanced points. This is a little bit of a nuanced point. So the zero-sum game myth is, about, is a myth about the nature of trade. The materialist myth is a myth about the nature of wealth. So the materialist myth is essentially the idea that wealth is a physical thing. It's just, it's a finite amount of stuff that's out there. And so if somebody has a lot of it, that means somebody must have less of it. So a popular metaphor for this would be the pie. And you hear this when you talk about, well, so-and-so got more than his fair share. The idea is that it's like a pie. Imagine an economy like this. And with a pie, it's a physical manifestation of a zero-sum game. If you eat a quarter of the pie before your friends come over, you're going to have, they're going to all get smaller slices. So that's why you do it, right? If you want a quarter of the pie, you do it before they get there and you cut up the pie and you hope they don't notice, right? Uh, but if they all show up before you slice it, you're going to slice eight equal slices, right? Because that's the only way to do it equitably. Now, we know that economies are not like this. If you just look at any relevant information, we know that even Sub-Saharan Africa, which has done the least well in the 20th century, nevertheless, almost every economic indication has done better. So something about this myth must be wrong. 
but nevertheless, it sticks to our intuitions. So significant, if you think it's so silly and such a myth that no one would believe it, read the Communist Manifesto. It's exactly the vision of the economy that Marx and Engels present. Here's their basic argument. They argue in the Communist Manifesto that what they call capitalism will sow the seeds of its own destruction. Capitalism is a system in which there's a group of people called the capitalists or the bourgeoisie. They're the guys that own the factories and the farms and the tools and all that stuff. And then there are wage workers that get paid wages, maybe hourly, to work in the factories. Those are the workers, the laborers, the proletariat. And what, cap what Marx and Engels say is that this is what actually happens in this capitalist economy. So this is a visual representation of Marx's description, all right? I don't know what the color looks like, but this is not a representation of the numbers of people. Think of this as the amount of wealth in the hands of these different groups of people at particular times. All right, so think of the proletariat as 99% of the population. And imagine that England in 1750, let's say they have 70% of the total wealth. At the beginning, that's the red, and the capitalists are the lavender color. Let's say they start out with 20%, and it's a small group of people. So that small group of capitalists owns factories, they pay workers as little as they possibly can, and then let's say you own a textile mill and your workers make shirts. You take the shirts out to the market and you try to sell them for more than they cost to produce. And if you do that, you will make a profit, which Marx called the surplus value. The reason is because Marx said, things are worth only as much as they cost to produce. And so if you charge someone more, you're exploiting both the customer and the worker. So we called it a surplus value. Nevertheless, Okay, now this is based on Marx's labor theory of value I won't go into, all right? But this is the, was in, behind this. But the capitalist doesn't squander this uh, at a casino, these profits. He takes it back and he reinvests it, his capital in his equipment, so that the workers are more productive, they're more efficient. Then they will produce more with less. You can fire some of them, doesn't need those. Pay the rest a little bit less because they're now more productive. And then he will set, take those shirts and sell them and make even more money and more profit, and he keeps reinvesting it. Now, you see, see how this goes? And so Marx said, as a result of this capitalist process, people, the individuals with jobs will be paid less and less, but they will be more and more productive, and all the wealth will go to a smaller and smaller number of semi-monopolists. And they will eventually get to this point in which all the wealth that the 1% is there in the lavender and 99% are there in the red. And what happens? Revolution, right? In which the workers rise up, confiscate the means of production, liquidate the capitalists, and then there will be a temporary stage called socialism. Socialism was never the goal for Marx and for communists. It was a temporary stage in which the state owns everything on behalf of the, the public. No private property, the state owns everything for everyone. And then once people quit being attached to spouses and children and property and land and stuff like that, religion, then a new socialist man will emerge and the state will wither away in a communist utopia. That's the theory. This is where everyone got stuck, right here. Now why is that? Marx's theory was based on absolutely no empirical information at all. In fact, he lived in an apartment a few miles away from factories at the time in which the wages of workers were going up rather than down. So the evidence at the time, perfectly available, contradicted his theory. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because it just was wrong about pretty much everything you would need to be wrong about in an economy. What's the market reality? 
Now, market reality is not a utopia, and there are recessions and depressions and all sorts of depravity, but the market reality is that over time, if you want to think of a market or an economy in any way, think of it as a pie that grows, not like any pie we've ever known. I admit this is not the best animation in the world. It's the best I can do, right? <laughs> but here's the reality. We bombed Japan brutally. We destroyed its navy. We destroyed its major cities. And within 30 years, through trade and rule of law, it became a prosperous country. South Korea was pure peasantry in a military dictatorship, and now look at it. This is the market reality. The late Steve Jobs did not get wealthy stealing iPods from homeless people. It's just not how it worked. What did he do? He participated in a process of wealth creation for himself and others. Wealth that wasn't there before. If you get that, you're going to sort of get the essence of economic reality. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that there can be wealth that exists that didn't exist before? All economists know this is true. We know that economies that trade with each other and focus on their comparative advantage both get better off. The countries that we trade with benefit from it, and so do we. How is this possible? Well, the economist qua economist, I think, has a hard time answering this question. The Christians should not. If you read the first chapter, the first page of the Bible, what does it say? Describes a God, creates the world, he has this mysterious work week, he creates light, separates the light from the darkness, and then that sets up his own day, right? And he acts during the day, and then what happens? Evening and morning, first day, second day, and he acts during the daytime, rests in the evening, and he does several different things, and then on the sixth day, there's an encore. After he says, let there be, he stops and speaks to himself for the first time. And he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Male and female, he created them. And what does he do? He creates them and then he commands them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, what if you knew nothing about the biblical narrative but that one text? What would you think it meant to be made in the image of God? It would stand to reason that at least part of that must have something to do with what this God is doing. What is this God doing? This God is exercising sovereignty and freedom and creativity in a preeminent way. He calls everything, including matter, into existence without impediment. Then he leaves it to us, those made in his image, to take the material world that he has created and to transform it. So God made the sand. He left it to us to make fiber optic cables and computer chips. Pascal, Blaise Pascal said, God grants even to creatures the dignity of causality. In other words, God doesn't hoard all of the causality and all the creativity to himself. He gives us powers of creativity and lets us do some things on our own. That, if that is true, explains precisely why we should want an economic system that is best at channeling people's ingenuity, at their creativity, channeling their legitimate self-interest and even their fallenness into beneficial outcomes. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.